0: I want to read to you Hebrews 8, verses 6 through 13. This is the word of Almighty God. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Pray with me, dear friends. Lord, it is good to be gathered together with the people of God. And it is good to study your word. And it is good to hear of your covenants. And it's good to see how Jesus is the fulfillment of all your promises. Now this day, continue to make us ready to celebrate the arrival of the Savior as we see your promises made that will be fulfilled. We pray it in Christ's holy name. Amen. You can be seated. So several weeks ago, I said to us that to look at and appreciate a large painting you got to look at it in more than one way. You might look up close, catching the detailed brushwork and the technique of the artist. You might need to step back to take in the grand scope of the picture that the artist is putting together. And then over the past several weeks, what we've been doing is stepping back to take a look at the big picture view of the Bible. We've watched the overall story of redemption come together. And we've highlighted its development as we've seen God make several key covenants. Now guys, we're almost done. But how do you feel about that? You, you, you like the idea that we're almost done here? Some say no. Some, it's kind of cool to watch it, though, isn't it? We are one week from Christmas. How many of you already knew that? Some of you are going, "Oh, no. And today, we have one more week to watch promises being made. Then next week, next Sunday, Lord willing, we're going to see the promises of God fulfilled. Now, next Sunday is what day? It's Christmas Day. We're going to see those promises fulfilled. And just a quick trivia question. What happens if you come here at this time next Sunday? The, the doors will be closed. Where do you have to be next Sunday in order to gather with the people of God to worship for His glory on Christmas Day? Okay. Very good. Look at you guys keeping right up with it. That was a slight announcement right in the middle of the sermon, just for you. Yeah, those who would like to help us set up, one o'clock would be grand. All right, let's tell the story of the Bible, right? Before the beginning, the persons of the Holy Trinity, the one true God, Covenanted together to redeem a people for God. What do we call that covenant? The Pactum Salutis. Look at you, Latin people. The covenant of redemption. Now, in the beginning, God created everything that there is. And of all the things God made, what is God's favorite thing that He made? Peoples. He made people, and people are His favorite thing that He made. And God made mankind in His image. He called on human beings to display His glory all throughout the world. And God made a covenant with the first man, Adam. Adam had a job to do, a covenant of works to fulfill. If Adam would have obeyed, he would live forever. If Adam were to disobey, however, he would die. And of course, Adam disobeyed God. Now, important for your understanding and my understanding of the Bible is that Adam is not, was not an island to himself. Adam was the representative head of all mankind. So when Adam rebelled against God, he marked all of humanity as rebels. When Adam earned death for himself, All human beings found themselves justly under the divine death penalty. But God was gracious. Let me just ask you guys, did God kill Adam the moment he first sinned? No. That was very nice of God. He could have. Instead of killing Adam at the point of Adam's first sin, God preserved Adam alive and God promised that one day a rescuer would come into the world who would crush the devil and make things right. And that promise is tucked away, interestingly, in the curse that God pronounced on the deceiving serpent. In Genesis 3.15, God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You guys know that God made that promise, right? And you guys know it's still true because how many women like snakes? There you go. Now, at this point, humanity finds ourselves, if you will, in an interesting spot. Mankind is still called by God to be perfect in order to please God. But... Mankind is utterly unable to live out that perfection, just like what Jason taught us in our doctrinal lesson today. Did you plan that? No. All right. The failing of Adam is counted to all of Adam's descendants. But God promises a person will come into the world born of woman, somehow united to but disconnected from the headship of Adam. And the one to come will receive a wound, but will crush the devil. The one to come will make sure that God's covenant of redemption is fulfilled. Now, I want to bring into our discussion two terms that we haven't used often in the series. We talked about the pactum salutis, the covenant of redemption. But let me add to our thinking, the covenant of works and the covenant of... Of grace. Covenant of works is a covenant that says, Obey and you will live. Disobedience earns death. Adam was under a covenant of works. In a sense, all of humanity today is still under the covenant of works. We are all called by God to live perfectly in order to please God. But because of Adam's failure, none of us can make it. We are already guilty, already short of perfect, already under the sentence of death. That, by the way, is why we die. That's why we get sick. If you want proof that the covenant of works is something we can't live up to, listen to all the people blowing their nose this season. That's a hint. Don't you guys know that in glory, with glorified bodies, sinuses are not going to be a problem? Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. In contrast to all this, the covenant of grace is a covenant in which God declares He's going to bring spiritual good or favor to us apart from any works of our own. It's a promise that says that though we have never been good enough to earn God's favor... By God's grace, God will rescue us and give us life. And the promise that God made in Genesis 3.15, somebody's going to come into the world and stomp the devil, that is a promise that the covenant of grace was on its way. The promise is not the covenant there. The covenant of grace is not ratified and enacted in Genesis 3.15 but it's foreshadowed, it's coming, it's on the way. And then as we watched the story unfold, we saw God continue to make covenants and promises. God covenanted with all creation through Noah that he would never again destroy the earth until his promises are fulfilled and the elect are redeemed. God chose Abraham and he covenanted with Abraham to build a nation out of Abraham's family. That was what the Arndt family read for us today. Thank you guys for that, by the way. This covenant with Abraham has a works-based part. If Abraham and his offspring, if they obey God's command, if they circumcise their sons, they will have blessing, offspring, land, and dominion. But if they do not obey, the disobedient will be cut off. At the same time, The covenant with Abraham hints to us of the promise of grace to come. Abraham believed God's promises, and God counted that faith to Abraham as righteousness. See Genesis 15, 6. And God promised that he would bless the entire world, all the nations, through one particular descendant of Abraham. Genesis 22, 18 says, And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That is another hint of the one to come, the one who will crush the serpent, the one who will set things right between God and God's chosen. Well, God grew Abraham's family into a nation which we now call what? Israel. A couple of you are keeping up with me. At Mount Sinai, God made a covenant with this nation that he would be their God and he would let them be their people. He would give them the blessing that he promised to Abraham if they will obey his laws. But if the nation refuses to obey God's law, they will be destroyed. At the same time, God would never so utterly destroy that nation so as to keep them from fulfilling the promise that he would bring the promised one, the Rescuer, into the world. Then the nation, with God's help, took over the promised land. And when they obeyed God, they were blessed. And when they disobeyed God, guess what happened? They weren't. They suffered. Joshua, the leader who led and marched the nation into the land, declared that God had been faithful to fulfill his part of the bargain with the nation. And the nation still had to obey if they wanted to survive. Joshua 23, verses 14 to 16 reads, And now I'm about to go the way of all the earth, as Joshua said, I'm about to die. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things the Lord your God promised concerning you all have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. Joshua goes on to say, but... and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given to you. Later, David, a man after God's own heart, was the second king of Israel. And God covenanted with David that his family throne would be established forever. Whenever descendants of David go against God, the Lord would punish them. But God would never let that line be destroyed. Instead, God would bring an eternal king through David and David's family tree. Again, we've seen an interesting look here at both works and grace in the covenant. On the works side, the people of Israel, the kings of Israel are required by God to obey if they want to receive the promised blessing, offspring, land, and dominion. And you know what? They'll never live up to that. And when individuals or groups disobey, they're going to face the judgment of God. Some of them are going to die. Some will be exiled. Some will be conquered by enemies for a time. But the nation also carries inside itself, like a woman carrying a baby that hasn't yet been born, it carries inside itself the promise of grace from God. God will not let the people be utterly destroyed. God will bring his chosen one, the descendant of David, the offspring of Abraham, the crusher of the serpent, through this people, no matter what. So this is where we left off last week. That is a summary of the first eight sermons in this series. Sound familiar to you so far? Oh, good. Now, let's go forward in the Old Testament. I'm going to tell you that in the Old Testament, the story doesn't change. After David, his son Solomon takes the throne. And Solomon starts off pretty well. He builds the temple in Jerusalem. He declares that God has indeed fulfilled all of his promises that he made to Israel. God has perfectly kept God's side of the bargain. 1 Kings 8 verse 56. This is a verse that for some of you could be a significant doctrinal verse because we see a king of Israel declaring that God has already fulfilled God's promises to Israel. First Kings 8:56 Solomon says Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised not one word has failed of all of his good promises which he spoke by Moses his servant Now do you understand that the federal head of the nation of Israel right there declares God doesn't owe them one more thing. All has been fulfilled. That could be important. Ponder that yourself. Unfortunately, the people of Israel did not keep their side of the bargain with God. They would not obey God's law. They would not keep his commands. They would turn against God and the nation would earn the curses that they agreed to in the covenant at Mount Sinai. After Solomon, the nation is divided into two separate nations. The northern kingdom is called Israel. The southern kingdom is called what? Judah. Good job. Some of y'all are keeping up. The northern kingdom stood as a kingdom for about two centuries. They were always rebellious against God. Eventually they fell to the Assyrian Empire. But the line of promise and the Davidic kingdom was in the southern kingdom of Judah. For around 300 years, the people of Judah lived in the land. Sometimes they obeyed God. Often they rebelled. Always the prophets of God warned them to turn back to God, to keep God's word, to repent so that God could have mercy on them. And sadly, as time goes by, the southern kingdom turns against the Lord. God's prophets compared the people and their love of their idols to an adulterous wife. Turning to turning away from an or, sorry turning away from her faithful husband to embrace her lovers, the prophets called Israel or Judah again a harlot, an unfaithful, adulterous wife against God. God's judgment was going to come on Judah. Eventually, Babylon would come in and conquer. Have you guys ever? done those Bible in a year plans where you read through the Old Testament? How many of you have ever felt like that's kind of hard sometimes to read these stories? One of the reasons reading the history and the prophets in the Old Testament is so difficult is the simple fact that the story is dark. God's people are not faithful they earn judgment, they earn exile, they earn death. We want the light of hope in the story to get bright, but the scene, the scene looks like it grows darker and darker. Adam failed, Noah failed, Abraham failed, Moses failed, the nation failed, David failed, the kings failed. Would the promise of God fail? Would the corrupt nation make it so that God's promise of a rescuer would not come to pass? Well, thanks be to God, the answer to that is no. God will always be faithful. Even if the people fail, even if they suffer the judgment of God, God will keep his promise alive. In fact, the failing of the nation highlights the fact that none of us are ever going to make it to God by our goodness or by our works. We can only make it to God if God gives us grace. So, turn with me to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31. And let's look at God's promise of one more covenant a gracious covenant, a new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31. The promises that we're going to read here are so beautiful when you see them set against the dark backdrop of the days of Jeremiah. See, Jeremiah spoke in the land of Judah in the days that were just before the fall of Jerusalem, leading up to that fall. Jeremiah prophesied just before the temple of God was destroyed in Jerusalem. Jeremiah spoke just before the exile of the southern kingdom to Babylon. It was a time when it looked to the people like they were only going to suffer curses from the old covenant. It looked like the promise of a rescuer to come could not happen. It looked like there was only darkness. It looked like there was no hope. So think about people looking like they're in a world that's going to fail, a world that's going to crash, promises that won't be fulfilled, no hope whatsoever. Their political scene looked worse than ours. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, listen to what God says and think of the hope this would stir. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Right in the middle of the darkest days of Judah, in a time when it looked like everything was lost, God promises a new covenant to come. Nobody, nobody could survive a covenant of works. Not Adam, not the nation of Israel as a whole. So God once again lets us know that His ultimate plan is a covenant of grace. Let's walk through the promise here. I want to show you five key truths about the new covenant that should have us longing to see it fulfilled. Some of you have those spiffy new journal books. You can write notes in them if you want to. You don't have to. I won't make you, but you you could. Five points. Point number one. The new covenant. Oh, guys, this is so deep. Are you ready? The new covenant is new. You laugh, but some people don't believe that. (laughs) Look at verses 31 and 32. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make, what does it say? I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. One thing that has shown itself consistently true in Scripture is that mankind can never fulfill the demands of the covenant of works. What's the demand of the covenant of works? Be perfect and live. How many of you have done that? Any perfect people here? Just check. I thought my wife might nominate me, but she didn't. I don't know why. So, of all humanity, only Adam stood a chance of living up to the covenant of works. And Adam failed. The physical nation of Israel played a role kind of like that of Adam. They were given a system, laws to follow. They weren't that hard, actually. If they would keep the law, they would survive as a nation, and they could not keep it. How good then is the news that God is making a new covenant? Israel's broken the old one. They've received already from God the fulfillment of his promises, but they've turned their back on God. They've earned the destruction God promised for disobeying him in the covenant. If they want to survive, they need something new. In Hebrews 8, which we read here at the beginning... The Lord lets us know there's fault in the Old Covenant. But it's not fault with God. And get this, in case you're missing it. It's not fault with the law itself. In point of fact, the law of God did exactly what the law of God was supposed to do. What did it do? The law showed us the holiness of God. The law showed the nation how to keep from being destroyed by God. The law pointed people to the coming of the promised one and his saving work. The flaw in the old covenant, as Hebrews 8 showed us when we read it earlier today, was in the people. God found fault with them because mankind cannot live up to God's standard and the nation, like an unfaithful wife, turned against the Lord who had blessed it. But God is promising in Jeremiah's day a new covenant to come. It is not a continuation of the old covenant. It is not a differing administration of the old covenant. It is a new covenant that is better than, different from the old. Now, don't get confused here. The covenants are related. Yes, the old covenant points us to the new. But the new covenant is new. And this is perfectly consistent in what we've already seen throughout this series. When God promised Abraham blessing, offspring, land, and dominion, there were two sides to the discussion. There were almost two covenants there, but I would call it a dichotomous covenant. You can Quibble with those words if you want to. But on the one hand, Abraham had to obey the command circumcise your sons, otherwise, you're going to be cut off from God. That's a works based covenant. At Sinai, you saw that the Israelites who wanted to remain in the favor of God had to obey the law. If they didn't obey the law, they were in deep, deep trouble. That's a covenant of works. But always contained inside that promise is a deeper, greater, grace-based promise. God would send the blessed one, the chosen one, the promised rescuer through Abraham's family tree no matter what. Abraham did. The new covenant is going to be the fulfillment of that unilateral grace based promise from God. Second point besides the new covenant being new, the new covenant unites the people of God. The new covenant unites the people of God. Look at verse 31 again, just the last part of verse 31. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That language right there is interesting in the days of Jeremiah. So I want to ask you to think about why. Why is it odd that God would say around 600 BC that he is going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. You know what the answer is? When Jeremiah is walking around, there is no house of Israel anymore. Do you get that? There's only the house of Judah. When Jeremiah wrote these words, Israel had fallen more than a century earlier. You couldn't find the people of Israel Instead, the people of Israel were being intermingled with people from other lands in an attempt to dilute the bloodline, confuse the national pride, get rid of their national identity. What do we call the people that are this intermingled bloodline race that has some of the house of Israel mingled up with other nations in the northern kingdom? Anybody know? That's the Samaritans. Nobody would have called that the house of Israel, at least not as a whole. You know what this should hint to us? This should hint to you and me, Christians, that God, the picture he's painting in this covenant, it's bigger than we ever thought. Yes, God will make a new, better covenant with the houses of Israel and Judah. But that covenant, in order to include Israel and Judah has to be a covenant that spans the entire globe. The mystery of the Old Testament, the mystery here is that when God brings the new covenant, when he makes the new covenant, it is not going to be a covenant for ethnic offspring of Abraham alone. Yes, ethnic offspring of Abraham will benefit from it. They'll hear about it first even. But the covenant has to include people from all nations. And you might say, Travis, that sounds kind of strange. I want you to think about the fact that God, when God first made his promises to Abraham, told Abraham that your offspring, Abraham, are going to bless all nations, not just your nation. And as the prophets of God continued to promise the nation that God would be faithful over the years, they regularly pointed out the fact that God's people would become a people from the entire world and not simply descendants of physical Israel. I want to give you one example. And I want you to think about how weird this example would sound to an Israelite. Isaiah promises this a generation Before Jeremiah, I'm going to read you Isaiah 19, 23 to 25. Just just listen, it's fine. But think about how weird this would sound to the people of Israel and Judah. Ready? In that day, God says, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, the two nations they hated the most, by the way. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria And Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Do you hear how crazy that would have sounded to the people of Jeremiah's day? Somehow, someday, the people of God will not be only physical descendants from Abraham. The new covenant unites the people of God. What the people of Jeremiah's day could barely grasp, is that this fulfillment is God creating for himself a brand new people, including Jews and Gentiles as a nation with the Christ, the promised rescuer as the founding, governing, leading, ruling, saving head. Because the nation is founded on the singular offspring of Abraham, the one offspring of Abraham, it fulfills every promise that God ever made to Abraham or to David by virtue of the Christ as the new covenant head. Ephesians 3, verse 6, Paul writes, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You guys, I don't think that even now you have a grasp of how big that truth is. But it should blow you away. Third point. The new covenant gives new hearts. The new covenant gives new hearts. Jeremiah 31 verse 33 reads... For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You all know that the covenant at Mount Sinai was full of laws, right? Anybody confused about that? The commands of God, where do they get written down? Rocks. Laws on rocks. One of the purposes of the Ark of the Covenant, besides being a thing for Indiana Jones to find later, one of the purposes of the Ark of the Covenant was to put that law of God on stone under a covering called the mercy seat. That covering symbolically offered a shield of protection between the people and their god whose laws they never fully perfectly kept do you understand that that's like a fence to protect you from the law that's why of course you open that baby up and look at the law and you die as we've seen time and time again no nation No individual ever kept the law of God perfectly. Adam couldn't obey even one rule. Just one. And he couldn't listen. All of Adam's descendants fall short. And so long as the law of God is a thing we have to try to achieve for ourselves, we will earn death. But in the new covenant, God's going to do something wonderful. Instead of giving us a new set of standards to keep, a set of laws out there for us to try to live up to, God is promising that he is going to put his word and his ways in our very hearts and souls. The new covenant will include God first changing the hearts of the people who are included in it. Because God can't put laws on your heart if your heart is a dead heart. Do you get that? The new covenant means you get a new heart. Under the old covenant, the Spirit of God would sometimes come upon people, sometimes leave people. In the new covenant, looks like people are going to be changed to desire to follow God from the inside out. And that's what we need because none of us are good at obeying on our own. Now, fourth point about the new covenant. The new covenant unites all its participants with God. The new covenant unites all. That's even worth underlining in your notes. The new covenant unites all its participants with God. Verse 34, the beginning says, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. God says, under the new covenant, nobody will need to teach the parties to the covenant to know the Lord. All of them will know the Lord from the least to the greatest. Men and women and boys and girls and young and old and rich and poor and whatever color you want to be. Anybody under the new covenant will know the Lord. Now think about how different that is from the covenant that God made with Abraham or with Moses at Sinai. You could be under the Mosaic covenant just by being a good citizen of Israel, right? But that did not guarantee that a person has a relationship with or knows the Lord, One could go through the motions of making the sacrifices at the the temple, could follow the basic food laws. You could do all the rest without having any interest in God at all. You don't have to like God to obey a couple of rules. Nothing about the covenant at Sinai guaranteed that its participants would know God in a personal way. Similarly, the covenant that God made with Abraham did not promise relationship with God. How do you get under the covenant of Abraham? Be born physically into the family of Abraham. That's how you got in. The male children of Abraham were physically marked as part of the covenant. There were no marks for the girls. But nothing about being physically born as a descendant of Abraham has anything to do with personally knowing God. Every child of Abraham had to be taught to know the Lord. The new covenant is different. That's what I want you to see. The new covenant is not something one can participate in without yet knowing the Lord. Knowing the Lord is foundational to being in the New Covenant. Nobody is part of the New Covenant who does not know the Lord. How much better this is. Now, as an aside, because some of you doctrinal nerds have already figured out what I'm talking about here. This is why we at this church, at PRC, do not offer any sort of covenant sign to the physical children of believers. In the Old Covenant, it was appropriate to mark the physical children of the covenant participants with the covenant sign. After all, children were physically born into the Old Covenant. They could then live up to it or they could renounce it, but they were under it because they were the physical descendants. But the New Covenant is new. Nobody is physically born into the New Covenant. One must be spiritually born to be in the new covenant so we only mark people with the covenant sign who have testified that they personally are born again that they know the lord that they're committed to his lordship thus we baptize only believers and not babies because believers are the ones who know the lord and should receive baptism which is the sign of the new covenant make sense Fifth point, by the way, God bless our Presbyterian brothers and sisters. We love them, even if we don't agree with them on this. Is that okay? Can we do that? Okay, fifth point, the new covenant, I love this, brings personal forgiveness. Verse 34 ends with, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The sacrifices in the sacrificial system brought a forgiveness of sorts. But those sacrifices had to be repeated day after day after day after day after month after year. You get it, right? Why did the sacrifices in the Old Covenant have to be repeated day after day after day after day after day after day after day? Hebrews 10 verse 4 tells us nobody was ever forgiven because of the blood of an animal sacrifice. The sacrifices prevented the nation from falling under the destructive wrath of God. The sacrifices atoned for the sins of the nation, of the land, of the people as a whole. But individuals who wanted to be forgiven were only forgiven not because of the blood of the animal sacrifice. They were forgiven of what because of what the sacrifice pointed toward. The new covenant is not a covenant that requires a repeating of sacrifices. The new covenant brings forgiveness to all who are under it once and for all. And that, as much as anything else, makes the new covenant infinitely better than the old. As an aside, and this isn't even in my notes, it could get me in trouble... When you see in a Roman Catholic church the practice of the Mass, which if pressed on what their doctrine is, the Roman Catholic church would tell you that the Mass is a repetition of or a continuation of the sacrifice of Christ, you must understand that that is a Practice that looks like Old Covenant, not like new. Because the Bible tells us Jesus died one time for sins, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. And our hope and our forgiveness cannot be in a continuation of that sacrifice, but in the trusting, in the once for all time, perfectly finished, completed work of Jesus. Now, let's stop and see where we are. Because now the Old Testament is closing on our series. God has promised a new covenant will come. And that new covenant, oh, it's needed. Because nobody could keep the old one. No human being in the Old Testament ever managed to live up to the requirements of the covenant of works. Adam failed, Abraham failed, Moses failed, the nation failed, David and his offspring failed. If humanity is left in that state, we all die and God's plan fails. We need a new covenant. We need a new representative head to lead us and make us right with God. Thanks be to God, friends. The Lord God had a better plan than what the old covenant looked like. And it was God's plan from before the dawn of time. God used the old covenant to point toward and show the need of the new. In today's passage, God promised the new one would come. Jeremiah's words were written somewhere around the year 600 BC, 600 years before Christ. For the next six centuries, the faithful in the nation of Israel would look forward to the and and long for the coming of that new covenant. The covenant that God promised, they wanted it so bad, they needed it so bad. Those who believed the promise of God were the ones God had elected to salvation. But think about this, friends. As the years went by, the longing for the fulfillment of the promise got stronger and stronger. But the world around the people of God got darker and darker. For the last four centuries before the birth of Jesus, after the end of Malachi, before the prophets start speaking in Luke, for four full centuries, God sent no word to the nation through any prophet. It is as if creation held its breath in anticipation of the arrival of God's promised rescuer and king. What about 10 seconds of silence feels like? How about 400 years from God? If today you are a follower of Jesus, you can rejoice not only in the promise of the new covenant, but that it came. Why would we rejoice? Because Jesus is the fulfillment of the new covenant promise. God's sending His Son to earth is God keeping His forever promise. The new covenant is new. It unites the people of God. It gives new hearts. It unites all its participants with God. It brings personal forgiveness. Now Christians, as Christmas approaches, and man is it close, see the beauty of how God brought that covenant from promise to reality through Jesus. And perhaps you're hearing me and you don't yet know God. Can I tell you something? We can't make ourselves okay with God through our personal obedience to any rule or any standard. If you think for a minute you can obey a set of commands and make yourself okay with God, you are wrong. And you're dead. But listen to me. Our hope, your hope, is that you can have the forgiveness and the personal relationship with God that he promised in his new covenant. And the only way for you to have that is for you to stop trying to be good and for you to put your trust in Jesus and his finished work alone. Hear me. Only Jesus, God the Son, born of woman, born under the law, ever actually satisfied the demands of perfection under the covenant of works. And Jesus died to pay the price to redeem all of God's people from their sins. Naturally, starting off, all of us are counted as guilty with Adam, both because of Adam's failure and our own. But you can be counted as perfect along with Jesus, because God is willing to credit your account with Jesus' perfection. You want that forgiveness? Do you want to know God? Believe in Jesus, and you will enter into the blessings of God's new covenant. Let's pray together. God, again, I just stop and say thank you so much as we look at the promise of the new covenant, we know, we know you promised something great and then you brought it to pass. Thank you, God. I pray that everyone who hears this will have life in Jesus. I know, God, that people are going to hear this who are still trying to work their way to you. I pray that you'll help them to give up and just trust Jesus. I know that some people are going to hear this and they're going to just fight it because they don't want to be surrendered to you. I pray that you'll help them to give up and just trust Jesus and help them have a new heart, one that is changed. I pray for our friends and our families that they will have new hearts that trust you. And I pray for our church that you will grow us to your glory that your name might be magnified all over this city and all over the globe. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.